This week on Geek Explained, in our X-May 2023 interlude, I'm celebrating the X-Men and the Guardians of the Galaxy by discussing an underrated gem in their collective comic book history. So join me as I put the Geek Explained spotlight on Guardians of the Galaxy slash X-Men, The Trial of Jean Grey. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is the interlude of X-May 2023. We've had some really awesome conversations with some excellent guests, and we have even more amazing conversations with some exceptional guests coming up, but this week you're getting just me. A little bit of an interlude, a little bit of an intermission before we continue on with the X-May festivities, and this is going to be our latest Geek Explained Spotlight, where I take a graphic novel, miniseries, maxi-series, ongoing series, and just tell you why it's so cool. And this week, I'm going to be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy slash X-Men, The Trial of Jean Grey. Did you know... There was a crossover between the GOTG and the X-Men. I mean, you probably did because X-Men go into space all the time. But did you know that it's actually a really cool story and people don't talk about it enough? We are going to be talking about it this week, and I'm really excited about it. This past week has been um, a a tale of ups and downs. Uh, Ups, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Incredible. I saw it twice. It's amazing. And I continue to be... Both uh, incredibly elated and heartbroken by it at the same time. Uh, Star Wars Jedi Survivor has also been taking up a ton of my time as well. Uh, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom came out. I still haven't played Breath of the Wild, so I need to get on that before I play this game. But I've heard really good things. And this past week, I got to be part of a really great panel with other voice actors from the Fallout franchise. We got to sit down as part of the Fallout 4 hope uh a big push and a big charity drive to try and end Alzheimer's, uh, benefiting the Alzheimer's Association. Really, really cool. If you want more information about that, you can check them out. You can check out Fallout for Hope. You can check out ALZ uh, Association. Um, it's it's a really great cause, and I got to have an awesome conversation with a ton of other great voice actors from all over the Fallout franchise. So that was really, really cool, and getting to be part of that is uh, something that I take very seriously and something that I am immensely grateful that I am in the position to be part of. Um, In less good news, uh, as I am recording this, it is looking more and more like... um, Superman and Lois is going to be canceled and is not going to be getting a fourth season, which is really, really dis... just... (sighs) It makes me mad. It makes me sad. I'm not happy about it. Um, 
will, of course, await further uh, announcements. Maybe by the time I, uh, by the time this drops, they'll have made an official announcement. But as I'm recording this, um, it is a rumor, but a rumor with several sources. So. I am really bummed about that, especially as we are talking about, you know, kind of the end of superhero television when it comes to, you know, that that era that the CW and the Arrowverse really kickstarted. So I'll have more thoughts as more information becomes uh, available, but safe to say I am super bummed about this. But all that being said... Um, I'm really not bummed about getting to talk about a really cool comic that not a lot of people know and or talk about. So uh, this week, obviously, our main course is going to be the Geek Explain Spotlight, but we also have our latest weekly review on the latest episode of the final season of The Flash, part two of the four-part finale. Tons to talk about there, and we also have, of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. So stay tuned for all that after the jump. But for now, let's roll right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as I sit down and put the Geek Explain spotlight on Guardians of the Galaxy slash X-Men, The Trial of Jean Grey. I have a question for you. Should who you are now be judged by the mistakes of who you were before? That's the question that is asked by the Guardians of the Galaxy and all-new X-Men crossover, The Trial of Jean Grey. This is our latest Geek Explain Spotlight, an X-May edition of the Geek Explain Spotlight, where every month I take a specific comic and tell you why it rules. And this week we are tackling X-Men and the Guardians of the Galaxy, The Trial of Jean Grey. This is written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Sarah Pichelli, Pichelli Cinderella, Stuart Eminem, David Marquez, and... I just love this story, right? Though you would be forgiven if as a, you know, more casual comic book fan, you had no idea that this was a story. And it's because this always tends to fly under the radar. And I don't know exactly why the reason is that this comic doesn't get the attention that it should, but... I have to assume it's during, you know, what is commonly referred to nowadays in the Krakoa era as the lost decade for the X-Men. Maybe it's because it's during a period of Guardians of the Galaxy where they didn't look exactly like the movies, and the team lineup was a little bit different. Or maybe it's because this is featuring the X-Men that were time-displaced during Bendis' 
both critically acclaimed as well as much maligned run on the X-Men. Or maybe it's just because it's kind of a short story and doesn't really do a whole lot to change the current status quo of Marvel Comics. You know, how events nowadays need to move the needle and change the Marvel Universe forever at the conclusion. This one is a smaller scale story with wide-reaching implications when it comes to the consequences of the actions made in this story. But it's a story that I routinely talk to people about, and no one really gives it a lot of attention. So, for the interlude of X-May 2023, I want to put the Geeksplain spotlight on this story and tell you why you should give it another look. You should take the time, read it. It's not terribly long. It took place in uh, Bendis' runs on both All New X-Men and Guardians of the Galaxy. Guardians issues 11 through 13, X-Men issues 22 through 24. So six issues. Real simple story, and it freaking rules. But to set the stage for you, to kind of give you the context going into this story, let's tackle both of these books as they were going into this crossover event. And I'm going to start with Guardians of the Galaxy, because I love the Guardians of the Galaxy! And it's fascinating to me that the Guardians, depending on what year you choose to read a story from them, they could look wildly different, both in team makeup as well as basic aesthetics. This story takes place right before, like literally right before the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, comic book film changed the landscape of the MCU for better and in some respects for worse. So you have this team of cosmic weirdos and misfits that are just trying to stay one step ahead of an entire galaxy that's basically hunting them. And the team makeup sounds pretty familiar if you are are a casual fan if you know anything about the Guardians at all. Uh, leading the band is Peter Quill, the Star-Lord, son of Jason of Spartax, and prince of that whole race, basically. Uh, he is joined by Drax the Destroyer, Gamora, Groot, and Rocket Raccoon, but they also have one more member, and that is, of course, Angela. Who, you may be asking? Angela, the sister of Thor and Loki, originally a character created for the Spawn comic books that during the events of Age of Ultron, no, not that one, she was pulled from another reality into ours and then retroactively given a retconned backstory that made her the third child of Odin and Freya and someone who had been deeply connected to the 10th realm. You thought there were only nine? Nay, there are 10 realms, that 10th realm being heaven. Not that one. Uh, but Angela was a really interesting 
character to bring into this story. During this era, during the Bendis era of Guardians of the Galaxy comics, what he loved to do was take the team that is kind of popular at the time and then throw in a guest character to see what happens. Uh, It started off with Tony Stark, Iron Man, being thrown in at the inception of this team, uh, of this current run at least. Then Angela hopped on board. Later on, we would see characters like Flash Thompson, Agent Venom, and Kitty Pride, yes, that Kitty Pride, join the team before it ended. And I kind of love the big swings that Bendis took to try and revitalize and re do like a soft reboot for Guardians. At this point, the um, the Abnett and Landing run had ended. We had Thanos Imperative. Uh, Peter Quill had died, supposedly, alongside Richard Ryder in the, uh, I believe it was the, was it the Negative Zone? I think it was, no, it was something else. But anyway, they were supposedly locked in an anti-universe with Thanos and presumed killed. And then, in the Bendis run, they just appear again. At least Peter does. But this is a very different Peter Quill from what we're used to if you had been reading that Abnett and Lanning run. I'm currently rereading that run right now and loving it. Like I do every single time I read it. But this Peter was more of a cosmic screw-up. He was the prince of the Spartax nation, or the Spartax people. Uh, His title of Star-Lord was actually a royal title because he was the prince of King Jason and the prince of the Spartax royal family is dubbed the Star-Lord. So he was running from his uh, royal lineage, he was running from his responsibilities, and got mixed up with this little group. And through their adventures alongside Tony Stark for a time, they made themselves known as the new Guardians of the Galaxy. Until Angela joined the group, and then they became priority number one across the entire galaxy. Because now, this group had a bullseye painted right on its back. And everything that would then go on to be synonymous with the Guardians, especially in the comics would be established here. Aesthetics are a little different from what people are usually uh, used to. The Star-Lord design, out of all of them, is the most different. He looks more like a Mega Man character, which I kind of dig. Um, And I, I really like the fact that in the Guardians game, they gave him this design, like, as an alternate unlock. Uh, Because it's just a unique design among all of the big helmet, red leather jacket costumes that he would then get afterwards. Um, This one was much more, you know, Flash Gordon, space hero. Like I said, I, I love the Mega Man reference or influence there, whether it was intentional or not. And so this Star-Lord, again, is very different visually from the Star-Lord that we know. He's also in that weird kind of middle ground where he's just starting to become the Star-Lord that we now see in the comics, influenced heavily by the Chris Pratt-isms in Volume 1. And he's that in that weird middle ground between that version and then the kind of manipulative 
post-war veteran Peter Quill that we get in the Abnett and Lanning run. The rest of the team is fairly consistent when it comes to their characterizations. However, their designs might be a little different from what people are used to, but I dig these designs a lot. And obviously, with the inclusion of Angela, this is a very different feel to the Guardians than what we're used to seeing. Turning things over to the all-new X-Men, which I think is a little bit more complicated due to the fact that these are the OG5. These are the original five X-Men, Cyclops, Beast, Jean Grey, Iceman, and Angel. However, it's not like the older, wiser veteran members coming together a la X-Force to do some superhero stuff and fight Sentinels and all that. This is literally... The OG-5, plucked seemingly out of the 1960s, though with the sliding Marvel time scale, it's like 15, 20 years ago, maybe? We'll say 20 years ago, just to be generous. Uh, but these are the teenage versions of these characters, plucked from their first adventure together by the current-day Hank Pym in just... One along a long line of poor decisions that Hank uh, McCoy has made across his entire tenure. And they are now time displaced, can't get back home. So they're trying to figure out what to do with themselves now that they are in the present day. Alongside all of that is the really complicated places that the rest of their future counterparts are in. We already talked about Hank McCoy. He's doing stuff. He's Sasquatch at this point. Uh, one of my favorite designs for the character, but he's still kind of holding things down at the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning alongside Headmaster Logan. Uh, that's a whole nother thing. Uh, Angel, Archangel at this point is, I believe... Still, if not uh, shortly past possibly perishing in the pages of Uncanny X-Force after he almost became the next Apocalypse, uh, Bobby is right in the crux of dealing with the fact that he is uh, gay. And that big change for that character, I can't remember where in this, if this is before, I, I believe this is before that revelation is made, because he, he makes some comments, some flirtatious comments towards, uh, towards some characters, but either way, he is still learning about himself. Gene, in this current timeline, is dead! Again! Uh, this is pre the return of Gene Grey, uh, post the Morrison run where they killed her off again and we had the beautiful Phoenix end song Scott and Emma got together we had Utopia and all that stuff and Scott is right smack dab in the middle of his revolutionary mutant terrorist era his uh his vigilante era if you will and I really love this era for Scott and not just current day Scott. I also fucking love Teen Scott. I he is possibly the biggest benefactor out of the five that are brought into the modern day because the sheer number of varied stories that he gets as Scott and as Cyclops and just as a character is phenomenal. He gets to meet his revolutionary uh, future self who is intent on 
at the same time shielding him from the future as well as trying to get him to be on his side. Uh, he gets to join up with other like-minded young heroes and form the champions. We get to see him dealing with the aspects of his future that have already been written for him. And beginning in this story, we get to see him go to space and reconnect with the dad that he never got to know. I love this era of Cyclops stories, both as an adult and as a teenager, and this is one of my favorite things about the Bendis era when it comes to his dual, or I guess rather his trio of duties with him helming X-Men, Ultimate Spider-Man in the later days of that run, as well as the Guardians of the Galaxy. I really... Man, I I dig where this finds both of those teams and both of those books. So all of these characters are kind of trying to figure out who they are. For the X-Men, it is a much more, I think, uh, literal sense of trying to figure out where do we fit in in this new status quo for the X-Men. Gene is still dealing with the fact that, oh, maybe I am this mutant messiah who has died twice in my lifetime, minimum, and I have just started this journey and I don't know what I am supposed to do now. Uh, while at the same time, it's a more of a metaphorical journey for the Guardians trying to find their place in the galaxy and also trying to figure out, you know, on kind of a more macro level, what the publishers and what Marvel wants this story to be. They know what's coming with the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. They don't know how successful it's going to be, which I think is why they went more halvesies at this point in time. You would see after the conclusion, or the conclusion, after the debut of that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 film, the Guardians would full-on just go headfirst into the movie characterizations and visuals. And my Mega Man Star-Lord would go away and be replaced by a Pratt Light. And this kind of features as your last kind of hurrah for those characters and for, you know, this version of the Guardians before they became more embroiled in crossovers and being part of, you know, stuff like Secret War, Civil War II, uh, all the stuff that you get when you become an, a, a, uh, an all-star class A member of the uh, of the mainstream comic book media. And so this story finds them here. Uh, the Guardians are still, you know, putzing around doing their thing while the X-Men are currently being trained by Kitty Pride, who has stepped up and has become Professor K or Professor Pride, leading this team away from uh from the Wolverine and the X-Men book and becoming their Professor Xavier of sorts of the modern day, which I love. I love any time that Kitty gets to be a leader and a teacher. And so her mentoring this new batch of kids who are past versions of all of her mentors and heroes is a really cool journey for that character. And I love her period of time in this. But so this story involves... Not just these two teams, but also the wider galactic, um, the wider galactic 
socioeconomic uh, state uh, at the time when it comes to Marvel. Marvel Cosmic was going through a change at this point where they were still trying to figure out what their next big thing was going to be post the... uh, Abnett and Lanning taking everything, annihilations after annihilations after Thanos imperatives. Uh, Hickman was right smack dab in the midst of his magnum opus, which is that Avengers run, and kind of restructuring things around Infinity. I believe Infinity had just happened before this, and so the galaxy is in disarray, war is breaking out everywhere, and so this council of... It's basically Space UN. Uh, We've got representatives from all over the galaxy. Uh, Jason of Spartax. We've got the the High Intelligence or whatever his fucking name is. um, Of the Kree. We have Lalandra of the Shi'ar. Also kind of absent at this point. So Kalark, the Guardian. One of my favorite obscure characters who I am chomping at the bit to see in the mcu uh kind of leading right now he's kind of the um the king regent of the shiar at this point we've got the badoon we've got the brood we've got all kinds of representatives trying to figure out this new problem because everyone remembers the swath of destruction that the phoenix left in her wake after she became the phoenix she destroyed an entire civilization after eating a star having a nice light brunch and this is something that is known this is something that is accepted this is something that the shiar empire has been lying awake at night thinking about for years after this because that planet was part of the shiar empire and the phoenix was ultimately what we were led to believe brought to justice for that act during the Phoenix and Dark Phoenix saga. However, Gene never spent any time behind bars. Gene never went on trial. They had a really great story where she and the X-Men at the time did a little fun trial by combat with the uh, not Legion of Superheroes, (laughs) the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, and... At the conclusion of that, she never really got any kind of, you know, punishment because she ended up, quote-unquote, dying for, uh, I think that was the second time at the time. And so this has been something that has kind of been hung over the heads of the Shi'ar Empire and specifically above Guardian because he was the tip of the spear when it came to the Imperial Guard, and he was the one who was supposed to bring this woman, this entity, to justice. And now he might have a second shot at it, because it has been brought to the attention of this Galactic Council that Jean Grey is alive, and Jean Grey is on Earth, just hanging out, a war criminal, just doing her thing. And so the Shi'ar led by Guardian, basically say, okay, we are going to do something about this. Unbeknownst 
To them, however, this is not the Jean Grey who did all of those things. This is past Jean Grey, part of this OG5 that were brought to the future, and who is just starting to deal with the fact that not only is she dead in this current timeline, but she also ate a planet at one point, and she was this embodiment of fire and life incarnate. And so she's dealing with a lot right now. Uh, but she is much like the rest of the X-Men in this group, trying to figure out a way to avert this future, trying to find her own way, her own path that doesn't involve her, you know, eating a planet and dying a few times. And so when they are approached, let's say, by this crew of terrifying uh, space people, and they are attacked during one of their training uh, exercises with uh, with uh, Professor K, Kitty Pride. Uh, it is a bit of a shock to them, and not just them. They are also joined by just like the Guardians having kind of a guest character. This crew also has a guest character, which I think was one of the smartest choices they had ever made by bringing in Laura Kinney to be their Wolverine. So while all this is going on, right, everybody's doing their thing. Wolverine's teaching at the X Mansion, or I guess the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning at this point. Laura Kinney is kind of listless. Uh, X-23 has made her way onto this new team, and she is the wild card, the enforcer. She is the tracker. She is the serious killer among this group of kids. And she is still trying to really get a handle on being part of this team. But I love this dynamic. Uh, Scott and Jean are dealing with the fact that they are, like, destined to be OTP, but also not super feeling that because this is they were plucked before those feelings were ever really, you know, established or developed. And so they are, I wouldn't say, like, on the outs or feuding, but they are dealing with a lot of complicated stuff. And, you know, being 15, 16 years old, they don't really know how to deal with all that. And then you throw in a wild card like Wolverine, uh, the future Wolverine, that is Laura Kinney, and it just brings a new dynamic to the group that I really, really dig. But they are, like I said, attacked by this uh, SWAT team, essentially, this black ops team from the Shi'ar, who abduct Jean, take out everybody else, and they leave. And no sooner have they caught their breath... Uh, trying to decide what the hell just happened and how they're going to deal with it, then the Guardians of the Flarking Galaxy show up like, hey, don't worry, we're here to save Gene. Wait. Dang. Oh, man. We, we're... Woof. So they arrive just out of the nick of time, and this team is now brought together featuring two super teams that you don't often see crossovers with. And that's what I love about this story. Uh, you get to see how this uh, this band of merry characters are reacting to each other. Uh, I love some of the interplay and the reactions. You know, Hank McCoy is ever the, at this point at least, ever the scientist and the scholar. And so he's like, wait a second, y'all are from space? That's wild! Tell me everything! And 
Bobby is like, oh my god, everyone here is so attractive, and I don't know how to feel about that just yet. Laura's just kind of along for the ride, and Scott is beside himself, because he doesn't know how to deal with everything that's going on. Um, so the Guardians take the X-Men into space. They are accosted by the Shi'ar Empire, but they are given a second chance by way of a swift intervention by another spacefaring band, that being the Star Jammers! I love the Star Jammers, okay? I love this team. This is... Who the Star Jammers are is how everybody wants the Guardians to be. Just this roaming band of space pirates doing what they want. And they are led by the always charming and quote-unquote with big D energy daddy that is Corsair, a.k.a. Major Christopher Summers. You heard that right. Summers. The dad of Cyclops, Scott Summers, who at this point, for uh, Corsair, he's already had this reunion with his son, who is an, a, an adult man. And they've worked through a lot of their, um, their complicated history, their... Uh, there's a lot to work through there. Uh, a lot of complicated feelings and... Corsair's been through that. He's like, my son is doing his thing. He's he's being a little, a little rabble-rouser there on Earth, and I'm just putzing around in space. But then he gets to meet the kid version of his son, who he never got to see. He never got to raise. And Scott, who is, again, a teenager who had never really gotten to interact with his dad following an attack by the Shi'ar on their plane when him and his brother Alex were very young, Gets to meet his freaking dad. I love this story for many, many reasons. But it's also, if you know anything about me, because this is low-key a Scott Summers story. <laughs> I know the title is Trial of Jean Grey, but it's also almost Trial of Scott Summers. Because this boy, this child, this teenager goes through it. Uh, with his potential future love uh, being abducted and taken into space, interacting with all these spacefaring people, and then meeting his dad. And it's this beautiful moment of the two of them kind of getting to interact with each other in a way that they had never gotten the chance to. And to Corsair, this is a way for him to kind of get back those moments of him not being able to be a dad to a young Scott Summers. And for Scott, he thought his dad was dead. He thought his parents had perished and that it was just him and his brother. And now he knows his dad is alive. And so him getting to spend time with him, again, adds another loop-de-loop -to, -loop to this roller coaster of emotions for Scott. Uh, we also get to see the kind of egomaniacal... Uh, reign of Kalark. It's not one of his best moments. Uh, you can chuck that up right around this time, I believe. They're also doing the... Um, or they're getting ready to do the uh, Mighty Thor story where, surprise, surprise, Kalark is used by the Shi'ar gods to do some messed up stuff. But 
this is kind of in the era of Kalark. Kalark is the name of Guardian, if I haven't mentioned already. Uh, just kind of being a dude, being a guy, being a dude, trying to figure out his way and how he's supposed to lead these people. And he gets it wrong, to be honest, more often than not, which is unfortunate. But we do see him trying to deal with the burden of this failure that he sees in his younger days as as the leader of the Imperial Garden now, as the Praetor, the regent of the Shi'ar Empire, and him trying to correct that, and honestly trying to overcorrect it. Uh, we also see, alongside all these, you know, loop-de-loops of uh, emotions that Scott's going through, maybe possibly a thing with Laura! Uh, Scott was going through a lot of things, and I... I kind of love this twist on the Cyclops-Wolverine relationship where Laura is kind of his confidant and kind of the shoulder that he can lean on when he is, you know, having a rough time because him and Gene are still trying to deal with the complicated feelings of, yeah, maybe I'm supposed to end up loving this person, but I don't know if I really like this person. <laughs> and so we get to see the furthering of all of these complicated relationships just in time for the trial to happen. And alongside all of that, we see the beginnings of one of my favorite relationships in modern comics, and that being between Kitty Pride and Peter Jason Quill. That's right. This is where the love story that should have never died begins. Peter Quill, Kitty Pride. I love this pairing. It's something that I I have talked about before on the podcast. Um, Kitty is this incredible character. She has great taste in men. And I... I just, I love the dynamic between the two of them. It's really fun. Bendis obviously has a great handle on both of these characters. And so it's really cool to see them meet each other and there be an instant connection. Uh, Kitty would go on to have a long-standing, complicated, and enriched history with the Guardians following this. And it all starts here. This is the moment where Kitty gets acquainted with the Guardians and their histories become intertwined. Um, but the trial ends up going off more or less without a hitch at the beginning. Kalark uh, makes a big show of it. He's like, all right, we have Jean Grey here. We're going to make her pay for her crimes. How do you plead? And by the way, up until this point, Jean has been essentially getting counsel by uh, Oracle, a member of the Imperial Guard who is maybe the chillest out of all of them. Uh, she kind of sees that Kalark's going off the deep end and she's like, look, dude, you got to calm down, man. Like you and I both know that this isn't the same Jean Grey. You're kind of just doing this as a posturing thing. You're doing this to, you know, set yourself up as this, you know, conquering hero when you're really just trying to attack this teenage girl. Like, what's your deal? Um, so she has been doing this like little psychic, uh, psychic offshoot room with the two of them where she's like look you need to all these people are going to be here for your blood you need to convince them and it's during this trial that the uh 
that the Guardians part of this becomes a little bit more complicated because Jason of Spartax shows up and publicly embarrasses this man. Just absolutely goes after Kalark. He says, um, let me see here. He says, do you mean to say that only the Shi'ar were affected by the Phoenix's rampage of years ago? It is only the Shi'ar that get to place judgment here today? I thought the Tribunal's purpose was to keep civility in the galaxy. As far as I can tell, Gladiator, this girl has done nothing. Certainly not yet. While you, Gladiator, and your people have kidnapped her and held her against her will. It is you who have taken the law into your own hands. Wasn't it also your people who once sent an invasion to Earth to have her entire family and lineage wiped out? This is kind of seeming like a big-ass vendetta, my guy. And it's this moment where Gene overhearing this and going... I'm sorry, he did what? That the perspective for Gene shifts. And I love how the art uh, shows this. Stuart Eminent is incredible. This book just has a cavalcade of three of my favorite artists in Pacelli, Pacelli, Cinderella, uh, Stuart Eminent, and Dave Marquez. Uh, three artists that Bendis is very familiar with. But also, I just... I just love good art. I just love good art. And this st whole story has it in spades. Um, there's also a really funny scene where the uh, the Guardians of the X-Men are trying to sneak their way onto the Shi'ar throne world. But they are... Uh, they're going to have a tough time getting in, blasting their way through because they've set up an armada. And so they basically drop Angela into space. One of the ships picks up Angela, and then Angela proceeds to wipe out everyone on the guard ship. It's... It's so cool! This is one of those... Uh, one of those great moments where Angela really comes into her own as a character, as a team here. Because essentially, on this team, you're juggling three different groups in the Star Jammers, the Guardians, and the X-Men. And so everyone getting kind of a moment to shine in this story... It takes a lot to get all of those plates spinning and to keep them spinning while also highlighting each one of them as the story goes along. And it's done incredibly well here. Gina ends up escaping. Uh, she finds her way over to this battlefield where after, the, uh, after our heroes manage to sneak onto the planet... The Guardian and his Imperial Guard are already there, and they engage in some fisticuffs. Again, really fun fight, but Jean does show up, and she kind of takes ownership over everything. She's like, look, I don't care. You kidnapping me, you accusing me of things I've done, that's fine. You went after my family. You have turned this terrible tragedy into a vendetta and i am not going to be a victim of your vendetta and this is when she unveils i guess her super saiyan form her binary form where she goes full-on captain marvel uh her body is enveloped in the uh pinkish purple light that usually has been a signifier for her uh telepathic and telekinetic powers and she bodies this man 
<laughs> she is going full out against Gladiator. The two of them are going toe for toe. They hit this, you know, that wonderful little clash in the sky. Uh, both of them fall, and then Oracle decides, this is done. Everybody has gotten their chance to show how big their dick is. I am calling an end to this. I am done with this whole thing. And so everyone is kind of more or less put back in their, you know, in their respective uh, toy chests. Everybody is able to come to a ceasefire more or less. Uh, This is also during the time where uh, Scott is still, you know, I, I think Bendis was still trying to find Teen Scott's voice here because this Scott, and this is why in our uh, our X-Men rankings, I did not rank, or the films rather, from, uh, from last week, the episode with Troy. This is why I did not rank Dark Phoenix as low as it could have because Ty Sheridan Cyclops in that movie has big teen Cyclops energy from this run. Uh, the moment, y'all know what I'm talking about if you've watched Dark Phoenix, my favorite moment of that version of Cyclops uh, is when he comes up to Magneto uh, while they are trying to uh, find Gene. And he goes... He straight up, this child walks up to Michael Fassbender, and in the one F-bomb in this PG-13 movie, he goes, if you even touch her, I'm gonna fucking kill you. And I'm like, whoa! But it threw me back. I remember this distinctly, going back and reading this story, because Cyclops... To the Shi'ar, the entire Shi'ar race, essentially, he goes... If you, any of you, come back for Gene, if you come anywhere near the planet Earth again, I'll kill you. Like, he is just on another level with this. Like, Kalark is staring this child straight in the face, and he doubles down on it. He goes, I'm not joking. If I even hear you're thinking about it, and believe me, we'll hear, I will bring the entirety of the mutant race, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, I will bring a hellstorm of Asgardians, mutants, Atlanteans, and Hulk monsters right down on top of you. We brought this much fight right to you in one day. I'm telling you, stay the fuck away from Earth. Like, this is his big moment where he is just, I will summon the entire Marvel Universe and I will end your fucking planet. And obviously, this child does not have the pull that he is saying that he does. But it's a great moment for him. And it's one of those moments where reading it and also at the same time reading the Uncanny X-Men, which was the adult Scott story with his mutant revolutionaries, you see that moment. Where a little bit of that revolutionary Scott peeks out with this young idealistic Scott. And so they end up, you know, calling the ceasefire. Uh, Gladiator goes off. His pride has been hurt. Uh, The Guardians are like, all right, cool. I guess we're out of here. This was fun. And he gives Kitty this, you know, basically this communicator. He's like, hey, you know, call me sometime. And again, it's the start of that relationship, and I 
Oh, I love it so much. Um, the X-Men are like, all right, let's all go home now. Except for Scott. Scott is not going to go back with the X-Men. Because he wants to spend time with his dad. He's like, look, I love you guys. And that's not going to change. Like, I love all of you. I love being on this team. But two days ago, I thought my dad was dead. I thought that I was an orphan. So I'm going to go with my dad. And it's... Oof. Oof. I'm getting all teary. I'm just thinking about it. Um... It is the promise of the premise for these characters being brought into the modern day and dealing with the status quo of the modern day. You know, getting to make this status quo change where he's like, I'm just going to go into space. Like, I want to go and have space adventures with my dad. And Kitty is like, I don't think I'm going to allow this. I don't like this idea. And Scott is just like, look... (laughs) It's my dad. I have to go. And it's the it's one of the several goodbyes that he has with teams during this run. But he's like, look, and then he turns to Laura, his confidant, his rock. And he goes, you've been at it longer than all of us, Laura. Take care of them. Keep them safe. And he leaves with the Star Jammers. And Laura is forced to step up and be the leader of this team following the story. This is all juxtaposed by one of my favorite moments in maybe all of Marvel. Where, because they're all, you know, they all get dropped back where the, uh, where the X-Men were uh, originally abducted from. Which is this snow base that used to belong to Older Scott. Who he gifted to this new team as kind of a show of good faith. And so they're back on Earth, and Rocket and Groot are just kind of standing around, and Groot's just like, I am Groot. And Rocket goes, we talked about this, Groot. You're making it weird. He's like, don't go, don't get weird with the trees again. And then he turns, and he sees some raccoons just running around, and Rocket's, Rocket's response to this, the face he makes, and he just goes, put on some Krutakin pants! Just shouting and heckling these raccoons. It's... It never fails to make me openly guffaw. I just love that moment, and it's... I just... It's it's amazing. But after this, the end of the story sees a team... Basically kind of at the height of their power. They have also, you know, the Guardians have, you know, come together. They're hitting their stride. Pete's got a got a new flame, perhaps. And they are now the enemies of the Shi'ar Empire, which opens up a whole brand new bevy of stories for them. Uh, the Starjammers now have a new purpose, and that's to show this young Scott Summers the universe, essentially. And we get to have those, you know, father and son adventures that we never really, or Scott and Christopher's uh, Corsair, never really got to have. But then we also leave the X-Men more or less fractured because their leader has just, you know, fucked off to space. And so... Where does that leave the team going forward here? Laura's now kind of been more or less elected the leader, but 
Gene has now just gotten a huge power boost alongside a, you know, a, I guess, epiphany or revelation to herself that she is accepting all of these potential futures for herself, but she is going to chart her own path. And so the story, again, places everybody more or less back in their toy boxes, but things have changed and the status quo for this X-Men book has changed. So overall, I love this story. I love the fact that we get to see two teams that don't usually get to cross over, cross over. They would uh, cross over once again during the uh, Black Vortex story, which is not as good as this one, personally. Um, they take bigger swings with it, but I, I just I don't like it as much. Um, and we also get to see... You know, again, the promise of the premise with these characters, Jean Grey and the choices made by her past slash future self coming to roost for this new character. We are pushing the narrative forward for her and for the entire team. So it's a story that is a great introduction to these characters, almost as much as it is a great, you know, mid-season finale as a, you know, crossover TV kind of thing. Um if you are a fan of the Guardians of the Galaxy, check this out. If you're a fan of the X-Men, check this out. If you're a fan of good comic book stories that deal with continuity, check this out. It's a story that routinely goes under the radar, and that's why for X-Men 2023, I wanted to spotlight it. You know, not just because Guardians are big right now, though that was something that I was like, oh, well, maybe it's time I talk about this story. But it also is one of my favorite stories that I don't get to spend enough time talking about. And I don't really hear anybody else talking about. So if you haven't read it, give it a shot. I think you'll like it. And if you have read it and maybe you just forgot about it, hey, no judgment here. My name is Barry Allen, and I am the fastest man alive. When I was a child, I saw my mother killed by something impossible. My father went to prison for her murder. Then an accident made me the impossible. To the outside world, I'm an ordinary forensic scientist. But secretly, I use my speed to fight crime and find others like me. And one day, I'll find who killed my mother and get justice for my father. I am the Flash. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing episode number 11 of the final season of The Flash, entitled A New World, Chapter 2. And we're really ramping everything up and trying to go full circle with this show, it seems like. Uh, part one was mainly focused about kind of squaring the circle and really tying up a lot of loose ends from the uh, Edward, or Edward, of the Eobard Thawne plots from throughout the seasons of The Flash. Whereas this episode aims to further the mystery surrounding one Eddie Thawne. As we saw in the uh, kind of post credit scene of last week. Eddie's alive, but he's not alive. He's someone else. He's something else. And this one was this one was fascinating because this was a 
a flashlight episode. This was a Barry Allen light episode in, in the idea that he really doesn't show up until the final third of the episode, but it's mostly centered around the rest of Team Flash, which is really cool. The only thing I didn't love was fucking Mark's back. Mark's back, of course. He has to show up for no reason. While they're trying to figure out where Barry's gone, what all this Cobalt stuff is trying to do to Team Flash, targeting them specifically. And just like every other time Mark shows up after he leaves, he comes back and whoops, he betrays everyone. This is the third time! The third time he's done this! In this season alone! And it's... I I just... I thought we were done with Mark. I thought we were done with Mark! But we do get to see um, him interacting with Kion. Uh, apparently Kion's a goddess. I, I just, I don't know. I don't know where they're going with this. Uh, regardless of, you know, what kind of comic book inspiration this has, it kind of feels like they were like, hey, so we recently watched Sky High, and we remember that you were this character who controlled nature, and we would love to just continue you being that character. And, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not crazy for thinking that, right? I'm not the only person who's thinking this. But it was interesting in the way that they continue to further that, talking about... the you know, Kyun's connection with basically the green and nature and how she is influencing all that. And it's an interesting conversation. I feel like this should have been not back-ended on the season, right? I feel like this should have been an entire season's worth of build-up for this. And it kind of feels like they're cramming a lot of stuff at the end, which is unfortunate because I loved how strong... Uh, last episode was showing off all of the things that made the show work at its inception. Um, speaking of things that, you know, kind of came around full circle but didn't really but were from the first season, uh, Nora is back. Nor- not Nora, daughter of uh, Barry and Iris. Not Nora, mother of Barry, but Nora, the embodiment of the Speed Force, which is fine. It's good to have her here. I, I like that we got to have, I'm assuming, a goodbye to that character. Um, the embodiment of the Speed Force dealing with the embodiment of the negative Speed Force. But it was really just her trying to give Kion a pep talk on, hey, this is what's going on. Um, you, you got this. You, you got this, gal. You got him. And so it was fine. It was fine. It was fine to see her. We got some lightning effects. We got some speed force wisdom. It's cool. Where we, uh, where the interest for me came was in all of the Eddie Thawne stuff. Now, I don't remember. His name was Malcolm something. Um, he's talking about, like, oh, why does this guy have my face? Like, why does, I don't know who this Eddie Thawne is, but I keep getting visions and I keep getting, you know, these memories of what's been going on with him. And so we get to see him trying to 
trace the steps while learning more about any thon he goes to uh ccpd gets to talk to them they're like oh my god it's eddie he's back he's like i don't know who you guys are i'm a scientist at mercury labs and this thing happened and we see him slowly lose his mind as the episode goes on as he's bombarded by these orders from this disembodied voice to find her and I'm wondering, because initially I was like, oh, we're going for the long-lost twin thing. We, It's the only thing we haven't hit when it comes to soap opera stuff in The Flash. The only thing we haven't hit for the, the long-lost cousin, the long-lost unknown cousin trope. But it seems more like, especially with the post credit scene for this episode, that it's actually Eddie being brought back by the Speed Force, Negative Speed Force, Hyper Time, whatever they're going to decide. Um, I was a little disappointed that it is actually just Eddie again. But I'm sure they'll have an explanation for us next episode. Um, this one, I I did really like the uh, the Iris stuff where she was like trying to fight against the inevitability of like... I am trying... It's kind of been her arc the entire season, right? She's fighting against what fate has in store for her. And I really dig that. I like that that's kind of her... um, Her journey, her arc for the season is her fighting against fate. And it being this uh this constant pushing against a, you know, a raging tide. And that's... Iris West to a T. She's not satisfied with going with the flow. She will disrupt. And I like that. Uh, but it's the, 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 the A plot of Mark being possessed by the negative speed force and all the cobalt stuff. I'm just not interested in because maybe because it's Mark. I don't know. But it's just it's not nah, bleh, bleh. I don't really I don't really get it. I don't, I don't know what Keon sees in him. I just don't, I don't get it. I don't know what the deal is. But we do get to see Barry show up right at the end to be uh, there for the birth of their uh, their child, which is awesome. I really dig it. Um, having him be there for the birth of their child is important for those characters and something that they've been building up for the entire season. But then he just gets zapped away again. So he was basically just there for the birth of his child and then he gets zapped away again. We have no idea where he is now, but I guess we'll find out. And then, yeah, at the end we get to see um, Eddie doing his thing. And I, I want to say it's the future, right? I think it's in the future, but I'm not positive. And I'm assuming since they referenced at the season one finale where Eddie gets like pulled into the vortex at the end that ends up being that big wormhole that the Flash has to go deal with that we inexplicably don't really get a, uh, a satisfying conclusion on. Um, that he was just kind of like dropped in this future era and he's doing all this stuff but yeah he's like oh I got, I'm Eddie Thawne because he digs up his grave finds the uh the what is the the box I I know there's an actual word for it but I I'm blanking on the name I'm sure someone's telling me right now um but I can't hear you because it's a podcast but I you know he digs up it's empty he's like oh my grave's empty and he looks down he's like oh I pulled the bullet out of my chest and I am Eddie Thon and he starts cackling and then we get you know the cut to the credits so 
we are on a collision course for Eddie Thon and Barry Allen. No one truly knows what is going to come of this, but I'm really excited. I'm really excited to see we've got two episodes left, which is wild. It's wild to think about, but I will be here, and I hope you join me right here next week for... Uh, the beginning of the end when it comes to these uh, weekly reviews of the final season of The Flash. But for now, let's roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown for the week of May 17th, 2023. This is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop or comicsology or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explain Pick of the Week of last week. And you know it had to be this it's spirit world number one written by Alyssa Wong with art by Haining this book was fantastic Zomphy is a wonderful protagonist I'm really excited to learn more about them and the world that they are inhabiting uh, having Constantine or Constantine is really really cool there as well and of course Cassandra Kane. you know I will always roll up for Cassandra Kane. great start to the story I cannot wait to Continue on. This is a book that I think more people are going to dig into the more that people talk about it. So keep talking about it. It's going to be one of those all-timers. Though, of course, I do got to give a quick shot to X-Men Red. Number 11, continuing to be one of the best books Marvel is putting out. But that's last week. This week, we've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 books. We're back into double digits. Big week. Big, big, big week. So let's go ahead and dive into this list, kicking things off with a brand new, actually, I believe two brand new number ones. First off, Cyborg number one, written by Morgan Hampton with arts by Tom Rainey. Cyborg finally has as a solo after I don't know how how long it's been a while since Cyborg has had a solo and I'm really really excited to welcome him back into the solo book club let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis when a family emergency brings Cyborg back home to Detroit, Victor Stone surprisingly finds himself enjoying returning to the simpler life, where everybody sees him for who he really is and always was, rather than a larger-than-life superhero. It's been a while since Vic's been able to lower his guard and seek a purpose outside of being Cyborg 24-7, but a lot has changed in Detroit while Victor's been away. An aggressive new company is turning the Motor City into an overclocked engine for revolutionary artificial intelligence. And no one knows better than Cyborg that technological transformation always comes at a steep human price. Yes, I, I really dig the synopsis for this. It sounds like a story that is uniquely for Cyborg. It's not something that you could throw any hero at, which I love. I love the new design for Cyborg as well. Really, really digging this new vibe, especially with how bad his design has been for the last few years. Uh, I'm really stoked. Can't wait to pick this up. And the other brand new number one, and it won't be the last, let me tell you, is Batman Brave and the Bold number one. This is written by quite a 
few people, including Ed Brisson, Tom King, Christopher Cantwell, and Dan Mora, with art by Dan Mora, Javier Rodriguez, Mitch Jarrods, and Jeff Spokes. This is the new uh, hotness when it comes to anthology books. This is going to be covering a bunch of different stuff, so let's just dive into the synopsis and talk about what stories we're going to be getting. The Winning Card, Part 1, Slash Down with the Kings, Part 1, Slash Order of the Black Lamp, Part 1, Slash Heroes of Tomorrow. Coming off the spectacular success of Batman One Bad Day, The Riddler, the Eisner Award-winning team of Tom King and Mitch Jarrods reunite for a horrifying four-part retelling of the first bloody clash between the Joker and the Batman. A tale of loathing, lies, and laughter, this may be the most frightening Joker story in a generation. Superstar artist Dan Mora makes his writing debut, kicking off a new series of Batman black and white short stories. In a Gotham City overrun by the cybernetic henchmen of the Joker, the only person who can save us is the mysterious motorcycle-riding, bat-costumed hero of urban legend. The Justice League may be gone, but its enemies aren't. Who will protect this world from the worst of the worst? Ed Brisson and Jeff Spokes pick up the story started in Wildstorm 30th Anniversary Special as Director Bones and his new covert Stormwatch team travel the globe on black op missions to take superpowered weapons of mass destruction off the board. But this is Stormwatch, and as always, not all is as it seems. Down with the Kings starts here. In the Order of the Black Lamp, Part 1, from writer Christopher Cantwell and artist Javier Rodriguez, Superman finds a decoder ring with a secret message, Save Me, which sends him on a quest to solve a mystery with ties to the Man of Steel's past. I'm really stoked about this. I feel like, especially with the success of Urban Legends and how good that book was, we are primed for another anthology series. So this is looking really great. The stories sound awesome. Can't wait to pick this up. Next up, we have X-Men number 22. This is written by Jerry Duggan with art by Joshua Kassara, and this is continuing on the march to the fall of X. Uh, We've got a lot of plates spinning, so let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Orcus Rising. Mutant kind may be stronger than ever, but that's that just makes their enemies more determined than ever to tear them down. Orcus's plans are in motion preparing for the fall. So yeah, this sounds like it's going to be a prep book. Um, the cover is showing Modok, Nimrod. We've got What's-His-Face from X-Men Red, the really dickish guy who's trying to own the moon. Uh, we've got I believe Omega Sentinel, we've got Dr. Stasis, and uh, Three Clawed Cyborg that I don't know if I know who that is, and also maybe Beast. So there's a lot of villains that are getting ready to watch uh, the X-Men's Island burn, so I guess we will just have to see what they've got in store for them. Next up, another brand new number one, The Vigil number one. This is written by Ram V with art by Lalit Kumar Sharma, and this is also part of the We Are Legends drive that uh, Spirit World falls into as well, and I'm really stoked on the idea of this book. I have spoken on the podcast how I don't usually really click with Rom V's writing for whatever reason. It I think it's just too smart for me and it just goes over my head. I'm too dumb for Rom V's books. But I'm really interested in this story. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Who are the Vigil? The shipping vessel Eastwind has taken captive by pirates off the coast of Thailand. 
24 hours after the crew had been taken hostage, before communications had been established or any demands made, the crew reported an intervention by a group of unknown individuals. Amid other bizarre claims by the crew are reports of an individual who changed his appearance at will and a woman who seemingly dodged bullets. Once the pirates were taken out, no attempts were made at rescuing the crew. There have long been rumors rogue metahumans targeting weaponized eagle, illegal technology, with some hinting that they call themselves the Vigil. What were they after? Why did they intervene? Are there more metas among us? Stay tuned for more. So that sounds really interesting. Uh, I, I dig it. I like the idea. I'll be picking this up for sure. Next up, we have She-Hulk number 13. This is written by Rainbow Roll with art by Andre Genelette. And, I mean, She-Hulk rules. This book is so good. If you haven't been reading it, you've got 12 issues to catch up on and then also pick up this book. It's been really, really fun. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. She-Hulk's new villain makes a big move that throws Jen for the loop of her life. Plus, Patsy Walker, also known as Hellcat, returns to help Jen set everything straight. I love me some Patsy Walker, so I will be digging into this. Can't wait to pick this book up. Next up, we have The Flash, number 799. This is written by Jeremy Adams, uh, with art by Tom Derenick and Fernando Pazarin. And I don't like how close we're getting to the end of this. Um, I did read Hal Jordan Green Lantern last week. It was fantastic. Definitely go pick that up, especially if you're a GL fan. Um, but I... Ugh, ah, ah, I'm still kind of bummed that he's not going to be writing Wally soon. Um, we are going to be getting him on that Jay Garrick mini, which I'm still really excited about. And we do still have this issue as well as another issue after this. Um, yeah, really, really bummed, but still excited that Jeremy Adams continues to kill it in the DC Comics space. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Assault on Eternity. Uncovering the truth about what happened to their third child, Wally and the team must infiltrate the dangerous compound known as the Nest in hopes of saving their newborn while battling the formidable Granny Goodness. Yeah, I love this story. Uh, Wally and Linda just having their third child and it being immediately kidnapped by Granny Goodness. Uh, something that would only happen in DC Comics. But I'm really, I'm really stoked. Uh, this is Wally's first test with his newborn. So can't wait to pick this up. I love this book. Next up, we have another brand new number one. It's The Avengers number one. Not just Avengers, it's The Avengers. Written by Jed McKay, art by Carlos Villa. This is the brand new relaunch post Jason Aaron's run. This is the beginning of the McKay run. All new team, all new creative team as well. I'm really excited. Let's dig into the synopsis. Assemble! Jed McKay and Stormbreaker CF Via take the reins of Earth's mightiest heroes. The Star, the Icon, the Witch, the Construct, the God, the Engineer, the King. The world is ever in peril, and a new team of Avengers mobilizes to meet any dangers that dare threaten the planet. But when Terminus attacks, a new and insidious danger rears its head, one that the Avengers know all too well, and one that comes to them in the most dangerous of guises, that of a friend. 
yeah, that sounds really interesting. And if the the titles weren't uh, uh, clue enough of the uh, members of this new Avengers roster, we've got Captain Marvel, Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, Sam Wilson, Vision, Black Panther, and Scarlet Witch. Let's see. The star, I believe, is let's say uh, let's say Sam Wilson. The or maybe it's Carol. We'll say the star is Carol. The icon is Sam Wilson. We'll say the witch is obviously Scarlet Witch. The construct is obviously the Vision. The god is Thor. The engineer is Tony, and the king is T'Challa. So that makes sense to me. I think you could probably switch uh, star and the icon between the two captains but either way that's your new Avengers roster really stoked on this going to be picking this up Jed McKay has been crushing it for a while now and I'm stoked to see what he brings to the Avengers next up we have Superman number four this is written by Joshua Williamson with art by Jamal Campbell and Nick Dragota and this this Superman book rules I love it so much and it's been fantastic so far and we are continuing on the the ever-growing threat of this I don't even know it's this counts it's the the council it's it's the anti-superman friends I'm I know I don't remember the exact name of that but there was a group the like anti-superman league or whatever way back and this feels like kind of a redux of that which I dig uh so let's let's dive into the synopsis and figure out what's going on here Chapter 4, Screams from the Past. Introducing the Kryptonite Claw! Superman... (laughs) Jesus. Superman is vulnerable to Kryptonite, but what happens when other dangerous superhumans are exposed to it? If Superman wants to stop Metropolis' newest enemies, he must uncover Lex Luthor's secret past. So yeah, this crew seems to be targeting Superman just as much as they're targeting Lex Luthor, and I'm excited to see how much Supercore is ready and equipped to deal with a threat like this. Next up, we have Captain America Sentinel of Liberty number 12, written by the Hive Mind, Jackson Lands and Colin Kelly, with art by Alina Erofiva. And we also got the news this past week that the Hive Mind's time on Cap is coming to an end. (sighs) This has not been a good week for me. This has not been a good week for comic book and comic book media news for old Eric Azana here. Um, I'm really bummed out about this. It seems like after the conclusion of the Cold War, there's going to be a little bit of... um, final stories and then i guess there's going to be a big captain america sentinel liberty finale issue that they're going to be dropping on august 16th the week of my birthday of all things i can't believe they're doing this to me um it's it's sad it's incredibly sad though i'm assuming that means that they are going to be uh kind of doubling up their efforts on guardians as well as probably um uh, the Batman, Batman Neo-Gothic, which is coming out uh, pretty soon here as well. But I'm bummed. If you listen to our interview with them, Malcolm and I had a wonderful conversation with Jackson and Colin, and it was incredible. We talked all things Captain America, the Outer Circle, and all that. Um, so I'm, I'm really bummed that their time is coming to an end. But just like with Jeremy Adams on The Flash... You gotta enjoy the ride while it's still going on. And Cold War has been fantastic so far. So I'm really excited to see what this next chapter brings. Let's dig into the synopsis. Cold War Part 3. 
when Bucky Barnes and the White Wolf team up to strike at the heart of the Outer Circle conspiracy, Steve Rogers, Sam Wilson, and their allies are caught in the crossfire. As the heroes fight their way across the war-torn Alaskan tundra to rescue Ian Rogers, Black Widow attempts to stop Bucky's descent into villainy at any cost. I'm so excited that Natasha's here! Her relationship with Bucky is one that I think is grossly underserved and underappreciated, so I'm really excited to see what she brings to this conflict. Next up, we have Batman Superman World's Finest number 15, written by Mark Wade, art by Dan Mora. You know I'm loving it. You know how much I love World's Finest. This book rules. Let's dig into the synopsis. Elementary, Chapter 3. Ultramorpho. The rise of Ultramorpho. Years ago, Professor Anthony Ivo built Amazo, a killer android who could duplicate the powers of the Justice League. But now, an even deadlier android stalks the DC Universe. Ultramorpho! Able to... Able to transform into any element, including kryptonite, Ultramorpho can kill Batman, Superman, Robin, and Metamorpho in one fell swoop. But who created him? Who does he work for? And what has he done to Will Magnus, inventor of the Metal Man? Yeah, I'm interested in this. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm excited. I'm wondering, since it's Ultramorpho, if the Ultrahumanite has anything to do with this. Because we know how much Mark Wade loves Superman history. I wonder if he's going to be involved. We'll just have to see. We'll have to see. Next up, we have Guardians of the Galaxy number two. Speaking of the Hive Mind, uh, written by the Hive Mind, art by Kev Walker. I loved the first issue, and I am so stoked about picking this up. I've been waiting very long. I have been in Guardians mode, obviously, as you can tell from this episode, uh, covering a Guardians of the Galaxy crossover with the X-Men as part of X-May, as well as... Uh, Volume 3, replay the video game, rereading some of my favorite runs on the Guardians. Um, I'm really in Guardians mania right now, so I cannot wait to pick up this book. Let's go ahead and dig into the synopsis. The Guardians are caught in the middle of a civil war. Will the Guardians be able to stop it, or was it already lost from the start? Grootfall is coming, and it does not take sides. So yeah, I really dig the idea, and we talked about this in our interview with uh, Jackson and Colin, about how the Guardians are kind of this, you know, first responder, humanitarian, you know, rescuing refugees operation now, before Grootfall envelops the planet. And I am really stoked to continue to build on that idea, so I can't wait to pick this up. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, another number one is Titans number one, written by Tom Taylor, art by Nicholas Scott. I have been really, really stoked to pick this up. This is your brand new premier DC hero team, Nightwing, Starfire, Donna Troy, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Raven, and Wally West the Flash all coming together to defend the planet. Oh, I'm so excited. This is the promotion. This is the upgrade that they have been desperately needing for a while now. Let's dig into the synopsis. 
the dark crisis is over, and the Justice League is no more. Now, a new team must rise and protect the Earth. Titans, go! The Teen Titans are ready to grow up. Each member joined as a much younger hero, certain that one day they'd be invited to join the Justice League. But the time has come for them not to join the League, but to replace it. Are the no longer teen heroes ready for the big leagues? Danger lurks around every corner as heroes and villains alike challenge the new team before they've even begun. Will the DCU ever be the same? Yeah, really excited about this. Can't wait to pick this up. Can't wait to pick up all of these books. To recap, we've got Cyborg number one, Batman the Brave and the Bold number one, X-Men number 22, The Vigil number one, She-Hulk number 13, The Flash number 799, The Avengers number one, Superman number four, Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty number 12, Batman Superman World's Finest number 15, Guardians of the Galaxy number two, and Titans number one. Lots of new number one this week, so make sure it's your number one priority to hit up your local comic book shop and pick up some great comics. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space. Raises up our stock and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write literally whatever you want. I will be forced to read every single word. As long as you give those five stars, the sky's the limit on what you can write. And you'll be able to join the likes of our amazing Fantasy 15, including Seafire ND, Josh Pants to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, A Lock and AZ, Sass, Jedi JC20, Ken4656, and Director Hall. I want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you want to be part of the Geeksplain mailbag, send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com, put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here on the Wednesday show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes, uh, get first look at announcements that I make, or maybe just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news, feel free to follow us at Pod. that's at geeksplainedpod on Twitter and Instagram for as long as Twitter is around and as I can Continue to endeavor to get better at Instagram. Um, Those would be the places to follow up with me there. Uh, Finally, every single Friday... I, alongside my fellow Caped Crusaders, Malcolm Russell Nelson and Jacob Brown, are currently going through every single issue of every single volume of Grant Morrison's Batman as part of the Geeksplained Book Club. This Friday is the season finale of our Grant Morrison Batman coverage, where we're going to be covering the back half of the new 52 Batman Incorporated run, that's issues 7 through 13, as well as the Batman Incorporated special. This is it! This is the conclusion of Batman as penned by Grant Morrison. Their time on the book is coming to an end of the Geeksplained Book Club. So join us there this Friday. Be there or be square, not a circle. Gotham Fridays are a real thing, so make sure you tune in. Because we will also, as well as 
closing out the Grant Morrison Batman saga, we will be announcing what our next season for the Geeksplained Book Club will be. So join us, won't you? It's going to be a rip-roaring time. But that's going to do it for this week's episode. Um, really exciting stuff. I hope you enjoyed the uh, the spotlight on the Guardians of the Galaxy and X-Men crossover. I always dig when the X-Men get to go to space and having them crossover with maybe the best team of Cosmic Marvel, possibly, probably, uh, is always a really, really good time. And more people should be talking about this story. Um, next week... We're going to be covering, uh, we're going to be diving back into X-May 2023 proper as I am joined by Doug of the For Every Kind of Geek YouTube channel to define every era of the X-Men. The X-Men comics have been going on since 1963. And in between there, there have been some eras that have gone under the radar and some that are iconic. So join us next week. Doug and I are going to be breaking down the entire history of the X-Men into these iconic eras and letting you know if you are wanting to get into these eras, where to start and where to finish. Also, for those of you who are aware I talked about it before I'm going to plug it here once again if you are in the Orange County area if you are in the Los Angeles area I will be at Comic-Con Revolution in Ontario and I am going to be hosting a panel on that Sunday this Sunday as I am recording this it's going to be uh, May 21st I'm going to be hosting a panel that I am still trying to pinch myself that I'm getting to be part of it's going to be building families in comics x-men and the teen titans it's going to be at noon that's 12 p.m uh pacific standard time on sunday may 21st in room 104 at comic-con revolution ontario and i am going to be joined by marv wolfman of new teen titans fame and chris claremont of the x-men it's an x-men miracle i get to talk about found families in comics with two of the best to ever do it so if you are in the area, if you are attending Comic-Con Revolution, join me for that panel. It would be wonderful to see you. And uh, yeah, that's going to do it for me here. It's going to do it for this episode. I will see you right back here next week for defining the eras of the X-Men with Doug from the For Every Kind of Geek YouTube channel. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explained, I've been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody stay safe, and we will... See you next time.